Have you ever wondered how the separate threads of your life fit in to one big picture? How the individual moments of challenge and triumph connect to one another to form the great meaning of your life? I am Anna Mullins, your Life Story Editor, and I'm convinced that making sense of our deepest pain can help us understand our deepest purpose. In my speaker training program and on this podcast, I help people weave together those confusing, often shameful pieces of their past, revealing the life-changing lessons that create their profound new story. Welcome to Unapologetic Stories, where secrets are out and the truth is in. Welcome back, storytellers. We are rolling into a conversation today that I am so, so excited about. If you know me, I hope you do by now, you know how desperately that I advocate for emotions that are offered uh, as negative, typically in conversation, or seen as um, bad. I'm just going to use that very simple term, emotions that are bad, things like fear and sadness. But I've never actually addressed the emotion of anger all that much in my work, because quite frankly, other than its footing in fear, I just don't know that I understand it enough personally to really speak to it, which is why my guest today is like welcoming in a beautiful book of knowledge for me. I am so excited to learn. I love learning new things and I'm excited to learn from her and learn about her as well and what brought her to this particular conversation. We are welcoming my friend, Serena Myers, author of Sacred Anger, the book Sacred Anger. Now I wanna tell you a little bit about Serena first. Serena is a transformation mentor and professional speaker. Her divinely guided coaching inspires recovering people pleasers. My hand is going up in the air right now. You can't see me, but that is me. Recovering people pleasers to explore what they need and how they really feel, which means that they have to dive into uncomfortable emotions like anger so they can give themselves radical permission, as Serena would describe it, to experience all of it all the sides of life. Serena's personal and professional commitment to exploring the shadow side of light work in safe and sacred spaces, really what make her coaching programs have a deep and lasting impact on the participants. And of course, her new book, Sacred Anger, is available wherever books are sold online, but we're going to talk about that a little later. We're going to kind of bookend that conversation because I really want to start here. First of all, welcome, Serena. Welcome to Unapologetic Stories. Thank you. I am. I'm really excited. I mean, you know, I'm excited. I've been pitching you being like, uh, hey, Anna, hey, Anna, I want to come tell my story. <laughs> so I'm so glad you said yes. And I think my first response, which is so great, is like, oh my God, somebody pitching me. It makes my heart leap because I have trouble really asking for things too and really reaching out to people that I, I want to be on the podcast. So I felt so, I just took this like big giant sigh of relief when you reached out because I mean, I love you, you know, I love you anyway, and just have been waiting to get my hands on this particular conversation. Um, But I really want to start here. So for those in the audience, those listening and who just heard your bio, um, and who are just maybe venturing into this topic as I am kind of for the first time, let's start with the definitions. Tell me what is light work, but then also maybe uh, define what is the shadow side of light work? What does that Mm. mean? 
Okay, so light work is essentially someone who is consciously choosing to raise the vibration or bring consciousness to the planet. So some people will think about it only in the idea of like healers and, you know, Reiki practitioners and whatever. Um, but it's actually elementary school teachers who are bringing, you know, consciousness to the kids. And, and then those kids are then, of course, going out and growing up to be conscious adults eventually and so on. It is um, the people who are activists who have a deep passion for the betterment of the planet. And they know that it could be so much better than it is right now. And they're bringing and, and it's funny because it doesn't feel light because those tend to be really heavy topics that they're fighting for. But it's really anyone who is bringing light and consciousness to better things for all of us. Great. And oftentimes that's even just the work that we're doing on ourselves because it always has a ripple effect that extends far beyond us. So someone who is on a spiritual path is probably a light worker, whether they identify it, uh, identify as that or not. Um, but it tends to be a bit of like a little catchy phrase in those circles where someone kind of claims that for themselves. Oh, I love that. Okay. So, and I love that you kind of popped in the word activist in there too, because that really just like my heart skipped a beat. I was like, yes, it's really, um, and, and I, I'm going to dance around this term lightly, but often we think about light and light work and we think, oh, is this bypassing? Mm. Well, when you start talking about like the high vibe tribe and good vibes yes. only, yes. then we get into bypassing. So there are some, some, what do you want? Let's call them myths that have kind of gone around in this industry because of um, a lot of the stories around the law of attraction. So ways of being able to manifest. And they, we really have this belief that everything has to be good and high vibe in order to call things into us. And my belief anyway, is that we came into this life to have a human experience. It's why we chose to be people when our soul chose to come into a human body. It's why we chose to come into a human body at this time. And I have not met one person whose life was high vibe all the time. And so when we get to this place where we start to deny our own um, things that we're feeling or things that we're experiencing, or we just want to like push past the uncomfortable emotions and just like try to jump to either what the lesson was or, um, or we just pretend it's not happening altogether because a lot yes. of people will just like straight up burying it down. That's when we start to get into bypassing. And that's some of the shadow side of light work. So when okay. we talk about shadow work as a whole, that is more like digging into our ego, digging into our programming and the stories that we grew up with and our belief systems that are holding us back from sharing this light with the world. But when we talk about the shadow side of light work specifically, it's where we get into the denial of truth because we're trying to make sure that everything is Instagram worthy and beautiful and high vibe and so on. Oh, I just had full body reactions when you said the denial of truth. Yes. Oh, it's like it, that just opened up a whole stream of questions that I want to ask you. This is amazing. So the, the shadow side is revealing of the truth. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's ugly. I have never known someone who has had a spiritual awakening that was like they woke up with their Disney princess hair and everything was perfect <laughs> and polished and the birds were chirping. They were like, wow, I am this ascended being. No <laughs> one has that. It's usually some sort of crisis, some sort of breakdown before they get to their breakthrough. And it's usually very messy. But what ends up happening is we don't talk about that part of the journey. So we end up seeing these people who are these, you know, Zen masters, influencers, um, yogis, and whatever that you might see on Instagram who are really like living the high vibe life or whatever. And I'm using yes. air quotes, even though people can't see it. Yep. But we didn't talk about all the mess that they went through to get there. And if they didn't get through mess, they're probably not living the high vibe life that they're living because so much of that work 
is going through something and coming out the other side. Yes. Yes. That, cause that's where the lessons are. And I mean this, I'm so, I'm so glad you reached out to me to come on this podcast. Cause I'm thinking, wow, this couldn't be more true to my own truth and set of beliefs as well is that um, we need to see all the different facets of our human experience. And in fact, I think I just, I may have said this on a recent podcast. So hopefully the timing is right in the world of podcast release dates uh, about our core nature really being uh, creative and mm. with the purpose of literal evolution of self of consciousness of the world in general of the universe so if evolution is our goal which means ultimately change is at the core of that if we're just comfortable all of the time you know happiness and comfort and joy we don't really seek to change we don't seek mm-hmm. to evolve we really find our evolution in the moments of truth in the harder moments the more difficult challenges that we have to learn different lessons and actually evolve our thinking mm-hmm. and and i don't know that every soul came into life with the exact same agenda and i know that a lot Great of us point. really do have this kind of transformation agenda and so we're probably going to go through it a little bit more than other people and thank god for that because we also need the people who are a little bit more stable in their journeys to ground us Love <laughs> because that. you know we kind of it's easy to lose yourself in those moments like really really easy to think you're the only one especially if no one is being transparent about how ugly it gets before it becomes really beautiful and the other part about spiritual bypassing that i should have mentioned before that gets um it's probably the cruelest thing that spiritual people do to themselves is where they have these expectations that after they've done this work for x amount of time that they should just be above it or get over it or like this shouldn't this shouldn't affect you and i say shouldn't again with air quotes and i've done this to myself you know i've been on this journey since 2008 and i get to this place sometimes where i'm like how am i still repeating this like how is this still a thing and it's because the lesson wasn't integrated because it wasn't done yet once it's done the message the lessons stop coming back right Mm -hmm. the other thing is sometimes it has to be really layered in uh in therapy of all places in december of 2020 i got an answer to a question that i asked in november of 2008 and i was mad i was like why did you take 12 years of my complete devotion of showing up on the mat of meditating and doing shamanic ceremonies and energy work and all these things that i do for myself 12 years like yelling at my angels and guides being like how did you hold back and they were like you were not ready we would have blown your mind. And so we need to sometimes peel off those layers. And it's easy to get hard on yourself and impatient with yourself because sometimes it moves a lot slower than you feel it should. Mm -hmm. But other times it's moving so fast that you wish you could keep up. (laughs) So, you know, really getting into the impermanence of the journey, I think is really important. I great point and like huge exclamation point on the end of that for me that felt really true. Uh, you mentioned the year 2008, you mentioned the year 2020. So there is obviously this awakening that happened for you, it sounds like in 2008, where you began this work. Tell us how did you get into this pretty transformational work? Uh, so some people have these really beautiful stories about how they had like a messenger come or whatever. Um, <laughs> mine, mine wasn't that at all. I was, so my, like my life in my early days in my childhood and even into my early twenties was really hard. Um, like I grew up a lot around violence and drug dealing and chaos and crime. And to get through those types of things, we start to harden up. We develop this shell around of our, around ourselves. And I could see the shell and I started to have this recognition about a year before, so 2007, of how negative the voice in my head was. 
and then somehow made the distinction that the voice in the head wasn't me and that oh. I could observe it and see that it was really critical and that I didn't have to choose that way, but I didn't really know exactly how to choose something else. And then a friend of mine um, was sitting down in a shamanic ceremony with the plant medicine ayahuasca. And he told me about it. And at the moment, I went into it with this thought of, I want to get to know myself better. This is a psychological tool that will help me tap into my subconscious. Um, you know, I thought about it almost like plant medicine hypnosis. And it's not, it, you cannot sit down with ayahuasca and not have a spiritual experience. You know, it's not recreational. It is not, uh, it's not even heady. It's full body, full motion, heart cracked open. And that is when I realized how hardened I had become. And I would say it took right. probably about two years of regular ceremonies of communicating with the divine to really feel that shell start to break down and then build up something new, something that was a bit more permeable so the good stuff could still flow out, but that I still had some own some of my own like energetic agency and a little bit more boundaries and such. Wow. Yeah. That's big, big work. Holy moly. And to come through that, no kidding, it took 12 years. I actually, I'm, <laughs> I'm siding with your guides at this point, of course. Mm -hmm. Of course, it would take at least that long and probably, as you say, the rest of your life really to continue to break through, to sort of crack that shell open and see really what's underneath that. Mm -hmm. And and again, like you'll get one little piece of it. It's like a trail of breadcrumbs to go deeper and deeper into yourself. And the first breadcrumb, like it's the most simple thing ever. It was all about self-love. I started seeing like all of my traits and the things that were really wonderful about myself. And I was like falling in love with myself in the ceremony. And I was laughing and then thinking how great it was that I was tripping on the pattern of this Kleenex box. Like I was looking at it and the shapes were moving and I was like, oh, isn't that funny? And then, oh, isn't it great that I don't take myself seriously enough that I can laugh at a Kleenex box. And then, you know, that became this thing about this overflowing of love that I felt I had to share it with everyone in the room. And so projecting this love out. And if we think about self-love as being like the first step of any transformation, yeah, you know, it seems so simple, but no one sits down and says like, hey, let's crack you open and help you actually experience this and not have it be this thing that you tell yourself you need to think or feel. Right. Like you have to really, really embody it. Yeah. Again, and going back to your point as like, this is the whole human experience. This is not part of the human experience. This mm -hmm. isn't just some keynotes and messages that we have to like affirm for ourselves. We really need to experience this full breadth of emotion, which really leads us into your deeper work. And of course, mm -hmm. the topic of your book and so much else. Talk to me about the emotion of anger and how that maybe was cracked open for you? How did you even discover the emotion of anger? So at the same time as I was moving into the spiritual work, my nickname at the office, and people who know me now will find this like totally unbelievable. My nickname at the office was Little Ball of Rage. <laughs> and I don't mean by like, you know, my friends at the office, the owner of the company <laughs> nicknamed me Little Ball of Rage. And he would, he would introduce me in meetings as LBR. Um, it was, you know, the hardening came from being really angry of having these wounds that I didn't know what to do with my job before that, like I was brutally sexually harassed, like fondled wow. at work. I would write emails to my union and nothing would happen. I went from there into becoming a phone sex operator because I was like, Hey, if, you know, if my body is part of this thing, then I might as well, you know, make some money with it and try to kind of reclaim some of that power. But what I didn't realize is how much I could lose myself in that. Because again, 
you're becoming someone else's fantasy. You're becoming something else. You're not, there's no you in the equation, right? So you were just building on the anger then instead of actually yep. exploring it or excavating it, I guess is the word. It was 100%. like, I'm going to take this anger and maybe push it into another job or another identity or push it at another person in order to heal it instead of really seeing it. It was almost anger hardening, anger hardening, anger hardening. And yet- mm not understanding why my relationships wouldn't last, not understanding why I was always in these toxic dynamics in my relationships with my family members, in my partnerships, and in my, even some of my friendships. Um, everything was contributing to this kind of pressure cooker of anger. No kidding. And it didn't even, it didn't actually fully explode. Like it never really got to that point because I think the work I did with the shaman kind of stopped that. So it ended up being a crack where it could leak out. But the wisdom that it held stuck around. Mm. And I didn't really know what I was going to do with that. I certainly never thought I was going to sit down to write a book about it. And um, in 2017, I actually had this falling out with a lot of my family. I wasn't talking to everybody. And I had this thought of like, well, I'm going to tell them. I'm going to write all our stories in this book. Oh, and it started out almost as this way of, well, if they don't want me to write shitty things about them, then they shouldn't have behaved shittily. That is really <laughs> the thought I went into it with. Love it. Yeah. And then I got to the point where I was like, this isn't, this isn't helpful. Mm. So what is the root of what it is that's going on? And really it was this, these generations of anger of uh, these people who didn't know what to do with this emotion. And I had done the work to at least kind of learn from it a little bit. So I spent a lot of time in meditation and talking to my guides and figuring out like, why, why do we experience anger? What is it even here to teach us? And then I was able to then take the same stories, but I literally had to rewrite them from, from a, a much more grounded, less angry place yeah. so that they could be teachable moments and not actually just inflicting more harm. Yeah. Cause there's this difference I'm hearing between anger and sacred anger. There mm -hmm. is a delineation between just anger as we would normally experience it and try to, I think, get rid of it and release it and run from it. It's like, I'm going to, again, I'm going to pile this back on the people that made me angry, that mm -hmm. did the shitty things. And then there's this transition that happens for you in, in and around 2017, maybe where you come to the realization that there is a more sacred anger that needs to be adopted. Talk to I me think, about that. What makes anger sacred? Yeah, I think the emotion itself is actually the same. The energy of it is the same. Okay. It's how we relate to it that's different. Mm. So instead of it being the thing that we're afraid of, whether it's someone else's or within ourselves, or the thing that we avoid and we bypass and we bury down and pretend isn't happening, now it becomes a teacher. It becomes an ally. It becomes something that shows us with clarity, the things that are important to us, where our boundaries are, um, what wounds are still the things that we thought that we were over that are, you know, that are still raw. Uh, maybe, maybe someone's picked off the scab that we need to come back to that wound and, and tend yeah. to it. You know, it really is tied to our inner child stuff um, to figure oh, out like yeah. the parts of us that, you know, didn't get to have agency, didn't get to have a voice. We didn't get to have say so when we were kids. And so not only are we having these experiences, but we're not having the empowerment that comes with being an adult. And so all of these things are held in our bodies. And so when we learn to dialogue with it, when we learn to extract the lessons from it and actually be in it, like actually experience it and not just hop over to the ending of what's the lesson here. Yeah. Um, that's when it becomes sacred. Okay. Truly. So I'm, I'm wondering, I'm just going to pose the question, which may feel like a very simplistic kind of summary of what, of all this stuff that you've been talking about. 
But if um, I go into the minds of maybe a listener or an audience member here and think, if they're going back into their childhood and thinking, wow, what an aha moment I just had that my anger or anger that I currently experience as an adult may be linked to the fact that I didn't have control over myself, my body, my rights, my mind, my decisions. Is it is it rooted there on the whole? Is this feeling of I didn't really get to know myself or realize myself enough? Like where... I can't, yeah, I can't speak to everyone's experience, but I know that there is often things like that. So I'll give you an example. Um, I can be totally guilty of tuning my wife out while I'm puttering around on my phone, like easy peasy. Uh, And when she does it, sometimes it means nothing. Like we're both just sitting there fiddling with our phones or our computers and that's fine. But there are some times where I feel so hurt and so neglected. And I kept wondering, like, am I a hypocrite? Like, what is it about this that like really, really triggers me? And sometimes it would make me mad, but oftentimes the anger was actually a mask for things like my feelings are really hurt. And when I could sit down with my feelings really hurt, it was, oh, because of all the times that I tried to get attention from my parents and they were just busy doing other things, yeah. you know? And and so when we can kind of like, we become these little investigators of our own lives and our history and our energies. And oftentimes I like to say like, okay, great. When did I feel this before? And when did I feel this before that? And usually you run out of questions and eventually you find the root and then you go, okay, great. And now for me, I am like really big into inner child work. So I will sit down in meditation and call that version of myself uh, into the space of me and be like, Hey, it seems like you've got something you need to say. Like, what do you want to get off your chest? It's safe now. Okay. Tell me everything. I am going, this is so huge, Serena, this is so huge. So I'm going to, if I walk through this pattern, if somebody else is, is in this experience, let's start with kind of like step one is you have to, first of all, identify that anger is happening for you in your body. Mm-hmm. That, so for you, this specific example is like looking at your wife and being like, mm, she's not paying attention to me right now. That's, and then there has to be a pause. There's a cue for you where you first of all start step into awareness of that. It's like there's anger arising in me. So at the simplest form, if somebody feels that come up for them, what does that feel like? What does anger feel like? Is it frustration? Is it little balls of rage? Mm-hmm. What, how can people identify or even just stay aware of anger as opposed to, and I think this is maybe where I'm where I'm trying to go with this, is how do we know that it's anger related to something in our history. Mm. So anger is going to feel different to a lot of different people. Like everyone has their own experience of it. Um, For me, I I tend to notice it in the heart first. My heart just starts to pound a little bit harder, a little bit faster. I do feel a bit flushed. Um, There are times when I'm really angry where I can actually get straight up nauseous, but that's, Mm. that's pretty extreme um, situations. I can literally think of two times that it's gotten that bad. Um, I also will experience it not so much physiologically, but my head starts to ramp up. And I actually start, I've told my wife this so many times, I'm like, you should see the fight I had with you this morning while you were asleep. (laughs) Because I just start trash talking her where I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, you better sleep through that. Oh yeah, you're fine. And I wrote the book on this. You would sleep through that. (laughs) You would sleep through that. It's a good thing you're napping because we'd be having it out. You know what I mean? Like, And I start to like do this and then I catch myself and I'm like, you are ridiculous. You are having a fight with someone who is fast asleep right now. So that helps to shift a little bit. But I think the more complex thing is, is it just anger? Because anger is a convenient mask for as as uncomfortable as it is, it's a convenient mask for more uncomfortable emotions. It's a lot easier to be pissed off than it is to say, I'm afraid or I'm vulnerable or I feel powerless right now. Powerless is like 
a big anger trigger for me. Huge one. This is huge though. Is it just anger? What a great starting question. So if you're listening and you're having these experiences, we all have these experiences. We all, especially when we're in marriages during a pandemic, there's often times where we just are starting to get irritated mm-hmm. by something or usually someone. We start to identify what you're, what you're feeling. And then the big question is, is it just anger? Is it just that I'm angry? And what's next? And then we kind of walk through, I think what you're you're suggesting here or offering is that we can walk through these questions. When did I last feel that way? When did I last feel this way? What's underneath this? And what I actually you hit a, a, a wall, as you say, when there's no more questions, like you got there. Yeah. But what I would do is before we even get to the questions, this is like, I call this the sacred anger strategy, yeah. is having the, the awareness of I'm angry. And am I angry and something else? So we have that as like our starting point. And then we actually let ourselves feel it. So we're not trying to analyze it. We're not trying to understand it. We're not trying to extract the lessons. We're just like, ugh, this feels gross. And we make the space for it to feel gross and to be messy and ugly and whatever. Then we can move on to moving the anger. So for some people, they're going to do that um, by going for a run, by screaming into a pillow, by booking a therapy session. Uh, Other people will take a spiritual approach. They'll burn some sage. They'll sit down with a black tourmaline whatever floats your boat, you move your anger. Then I believe we sit down in the reflection and we ask the questions. So what happens is people usually have the awareness of I'm angry. And then we jump to what is the lesson because they don't want to take the space to feel it. And they don't want to have to take the time to move the energy because they don't want to be in it in the first place. Or, Or they jump right to moving it. They're like, I'm angry. Let's get rid of this rather than having the experience where we actually take it in and embody it for a minute. And we don't judge it. We just let it have space. And when we do that, we really miss out on like three quarters of the lessons that it was there to to teach us in the first place, which means it comes back because we haven't actually done the work. Okay. So there's two questions kind of popping into my mind around this, which I think, I, I think people are probably thinking, first of all, just on a personal level, you mentioned a lot of tools to release anger in that kind of second phase. Mm-hmm. What are your favorite tools? What's, what's Serena's go-to to kind of release that anger? So I am, um, I'm an audio processor, so I need to talk it out. Uh, I also need to calm down before I talk it out because one of my biggest fears is the harm that I can do with my words. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am deeply, deeply, deeply intuitive, which means I also know everybody's buttons. And so if I lash out, it will have impact. And I really am afraid of that. So I usually calm down first. And sometimes I even have the conversation while I'm angry, but not when I'm like deeply in it. You know what I mean? Right. So I talk a lot um, to process a lot. I do work with crystals as a big thing. Um, I work, my favorite thing lately um, is this beautiful liquid called Aura Soma. And it's a combination of crystal energies and divine um, intelligence and aromatherapy that's all kind of blended together in these beautiful bottles. And they come in different colors. And so the white one is like the purification one. So where I used to, you know, lean on sage or Palo Santo to be able to clear my energy, now I like squirt this in my hands, run it through my energy field, I offer it to the heavens, I offer it to the earth, and it really kind of clears and grounds me. And that usually gives me the ability to have the conversation because I really do need to ground it first. I mean, you know, it's funny because we talk about anger being like a low vibe emotion. It's not low vibe. It is high vibe. It's just a bit destructive. So we want to be able to channel that into something good, but it needs to ground before it can. Otherwise it just sort of wreaks havoc. And is, yeah, this is so good. And is this why you would think that people aren't really 
talking about anger as much? Is it because of the shame around these certain behaviors that might come out during the time of releasing? Like what, what is it that stops people really from talking about anger? Because it is really in the dark, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Part of it is that we've never been taught to. So like our parents didn't know and their parents didn't know. Um, the big part of it too is that we have labeled anger as this negative emotion, particularly because people don't know what to do with it. So they either bury it down till it explodes and they have no control in how it actually gets vocalized or um, it's just naturally destructive. You know, like I grew up with my brothers were both wall punchers. So we always had holes in our walls and lots of screaming and lots of tension and lots of like the nervous system being like ready to go, right? Just like, you know, um, hackles are haunched and ready to go. And, um, you know, when there aren't healthy expressions of it and when no one's actually been taught to like extract what the lesson is or to help or what it's trying to even show you about yourself, about what your priorities are or how your boundary has been crossed or anything like that, um, it's hard to see the good in it. We always, the, the most obvious part of it is how loud and destructive it is, not how powerful and beautiful it is. So yeah. when we have this new generation of people who are like reading books like Sacred Anger or who are doing their own shadow work, where they can start to have a new relationship with this emotion that they would have otherwise avoided, we can almost like become like brand ambassadors for anger. We like become their PR team for how it's actually not always bad. Yeah. I always say I'm fierce PR person and you're now anger's PR person. We could have a firm. <laughs> yes. We can start a firm, really. And I love that you mentioned this relationship that you have to anger. But I think what I'm hearing here, too, is that moving through this personal work, light work and the shadow side of light work, is really about uh, healing your relationship, not just to the emotion, but also to the people in your world, in your life, there's a forgiveness, I think, that takes place or has to take place, I would imagine, through this work. What role does forgiveness play in the work of sacred anger? So it kind of has two prongs. Um, I would say almost the easier part is when we are forgiving the people who hurt us. And I actually, I don't say that that is easy. I say it's easier. Um, when we start to do this work and we start to actually see some of the gray in the scale of black and white, and we start to get a bit more perspective of the things that are, that may have contributed to somebody who behaved in a particular way that hurt us. We don't just like write them a hall pass and say like, hey, no problem, it's all done. But we do get to a point where we understand the things that happened that shaped this event to take place. And I feel like that perspective tends to bring at least understanding into it and then understanding can lead to forgiveness. I find when I start to bump up against, yeah, but like I want to forgive, but um, then what I do is I don't try to force it. I pray for the willingness. That is my big thing where I'll sit down and um, and I will pray to be willing to forgive this person. I had a falling out with a teacher last year and it was semi-public and it was really uncomfortable. And um, I found like even like eight months later, I was still I was still in it. And so I spent every day for a month where I would wake up and I would pray for him. And I would just call my angels and I would say, by the laws of grace, like anything you can do to support him in any way that is in support of his highest and greatest good. Thank you for doing that. And vibrationally it starts to shift but the bigger issue with forgiveness and anger is forgiveness of self because when we hurt the people that we love whether it's with our words or our actions um, it's hard to take it back and it's hard to make amends and then we start to make the events that took place mean something about us as opposed to something that we did and we're not our behaviors like we we have behaviors but we are the people behind them right and so it's so funny how we can get to this place of being able to rise above with the people that we love and say like, oh, it's really, you know, I forgive you for doing this shitty thing. But when we do something, and often it's even less than what other people have done to us. 
but we have a hard time extending ourselves that same grace. So that expression of like, if your forgiveness doesn't include yourself, it's incomplete. Like I believe that big time with anger. Me too. Me too. Yeah. I totally agree. I've often said that forgiveness is, is really not about the other person at all. I mean, I know Mm -hmm. everybody has said that every spiritual teacher has always said forgiveness is not about the other person, but um, kind of like one step up from that is it truly is it's not about forgiving the other person. It's literally about forgiving yourself. I think, as you say, there's both things are involved, um, but that forgiveness of self is a big one. And particularly when it's, we're talking about uh, the insides of relationships and intimate relationships. And you've talked a lot about people that you love and interactions with people you love. So why don't we just talk about the person you love as My well? Wife. <laughs> your lovely wife. Now your well, this is interesting to me when you shared this piece of information. Your wife originally, when you started on this journey of writing the book, when when you know you were writing about all your family members and all that stuff, that I'm sure we would have loved to hear about. That would have been a very salacious book. Um, I would like to know. Um, tell me more about that because your wife didn't want anything to do with this book at all. She mm-hmm. she didn't even want you to write it, frankly. So this was yeah. Not so a here's place. the the background to this is that at that time my wife was my husband, so it was only at the start of the pandemic that she had the realization um, that she was a transgender woman, and in that acceptance and in that understanding, she started to get comfortable with a lot of uncomfortable emotions. She had to rock the boat. She had to potentially jeopardize our marriage because she didn't know how I was going to take that news. Right. Um, and so there, it's this radical honesty that, you know, it's the stuff that I do with my clients, but it was never something I was thought I was going to have to do in my marriage because I kind of thought we just both showed up that way. But when we have these aspects of ourselves that we just have so much resistance to, it's not that we're not being honest with ourselves. It's that we, it's like the wall is there. Like we just don't have access to the truth on the other side of it. Right. And so when she had this realization about her gender, that wall came down. And now she had access to more truth and more acceptance of herself and how she feels. So when she, uh, in before that stage, when she was a man, um, she, or at least she thought she was a man, um, she was not confrontational she was definitely the gentler of the two of us um and she was really avoidant of conflict and difficult emotions she bypassed herself all the time she would put herself on the back burner she would deny what she would feel until she would explode much in the way that we see people do uh every day i was witnessing that in my own family and so when i started writing this book i remember the first thing i did was i wrote this one story that's still in there um that around uh, a conflict with my brother and my dad and it was it was a really hard story to write and I was so proud of it. And it like 3000 words just poured out of me. And I was like, baby, I got to tell you this thing. I want to read you this passage. And she literally put her hand up and was like, I don't want to hear it. Wow. Like, I, I want nothing to do with this book. And the subject of anger was so uncomfortable for her that I couldn't even read parts of this thing that was like part of me. Mm. And the book always felt bigger than me. It always felt like it was an inevitability, like it was going to happen no matter what. And I had moments where I was like, if she rejects this book, she's rejecting part of me. And what does that mean for our marriage? Wow. But then fast forward to last year and she's had these epiphanies about herself and it started out where she would ask questions about the book and then she would let me read passages to her. And then she offered to edit it. So to go from being so resistant to like, no, like literally hand up, do not say anything to me to being like, yes, I'm going to read this. And then I'd watch her read it on the couch and she'd start fist bumping the air and she'd just be like, yes, and cheering me on. And I remember thinking like, wow, like this is the power of fully accepting all that you are. Mm. 
because then nothing is off limits even the uncomfortable stuff, like you're able to be in it, you're able to learn from it, you're able to experience it and know that it doesn't change who you are, it doesn't make you any different, but it gives you opportunities to learn and grow. Wow, I just literally, my whole body is just covered in goosebumps. This is the power of being exactly who you are. Mm -hmm. I probably just misquoted you, but this is the power. And not just the power for oneself, but the power to even open up to the people closest to us and to offer to edit your work. I mean, that's, it doesn't get more intimate than that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, she had been doing editing work for other people and it just, I didn't think that it was an option. <laughs> she had been so <laughs> resistant to it before it never would have occurred to me. And I was like, okay, well, and, and my publisher had like, you know, an editor that I could hire. And I was like, okay, like no big deal. And she was like, yeah, I'll, I'll edit it for you. And I was like, really? Okay. And it was, it was such a beautiful, oh, sounds kind of dramatic. We were already married about, uh, for like eight years at this point, but you know, that moment, the first time you get naked with somebody. Yes. And there is the nerves and also the revealing. And on the other side of that intimate moment, it is like this beautiful acceptance of who you are and like the person fully seeing you like butt cheeks and all, like it was great. <laughs> That's how it felt. So I had like the, the nerves of like, okay, here you go as I handed it over. And then slowly the robe would come down off the shoulders until I was standing there buck naked in front of her and she was fucking celebrating all of it. So, it was, um, I think for both of us, it was really beautiful and transformative to be able to be received in that way was medicine for my soul, especially before anyone else saw it. Cause like there's some heavy stuff in there and there was a little bit of a vulnerability hangover. And so to have the person that I love most read it and love me anyway, was a powerful first step before the rest of the world got to experience it. The parallel journey for you and for her as separate individuals is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Like to even think that this book is really, it's like your truth. It's mm -hmm. your undenial of the truth. It's like, here I am in all of my mess, in all of the things that have created who I am. And then there's Rhea, your wife, walking through the exact same journey or a version of that journey, mm -hmm. a version of that's a, of that high level journey of revealing one's true self and you get to do that together. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. And it was, and it was so neat that we could do it in, in tandem, but also almost in at different stages of it. So one of the things that's really great about our marriage is we rarely break down at the same time. So when one <laughs> of us would have a meltdown about the stage of reveal, we were in the other one could support and then vice versa. So there was, um, a lot of holding of each other of last year, like more so than I think most couples who were cooped up together uh, went through. Um, because on top of that, we had these bigger questions about our marriage and, and who we were and all this stuff was, was happening. But there was also this beautiful, just this acceptance and, and the amount of times where it was like, you are my best friend. And like, it was stuff we had said before, but like, it just held a bit of a different meaning after going through last year together. It was really beautiful. I bet. And last year was hard for lots of people, but I can't even imagine what it must've been like really retooling your entire marriage and everything you thought you knew that foundation really being rocked. Tell me about how anger showed up for you during that period. Mm. So the first part of it for me, when she initially told me, um, I was really mindful of the fact that a lot of people who are trans and tell their loved ones, um, it doesn't go well. And also right. that sometimes it ends up in self-harm and a whole bunch. I was very mindful of the impact. 
And I actually did the thing that I don't recommend people do, which is like, I parked all of my feelings and all of my needs. And it was very much of what do you need? How can I support you? Mm. It did get to a point where um, I realized that I was completely neglecting and losing myself and what I was feeling because this wasn't just, it was about her, but it was also about me and about us. And um, the first time I, there wasn't a lot of, I know I've read a lot of stories about people getting angry through this process. I can remember getting angry once and um, it was, it was around whether she should freeze her sperm or not of all things. And for me, yeah. And for me, it was like, you know, like our, our kids are grown. Um, I haven't, physically birthed any children and you know at this point I was like I'm turning 40 I'm not intending to I'm actually planning to have my uterus yanked out for other reasons so I felt um by freezing her sperm she was planning a life without me and for her of course I couldn't see this at the time because there was no perspective for her it was delaying the grief of fully saying goodbye to the person she was it was able to hold on to that one part of it but I was so dug in about my position of how dare you want to do this how dare you want to plan for someone else like why why would you even want to have kids at this point mm-hmm. um and it took it was weeks and thankfully the thing that kind of like broke it was once she started estrogen it wasn't an option anymore so um and, it, and we're actually at around the one year mark of this right now of this conflict and i remember just like cr- i cried like every day And I was so angry and I felt because I was doing everything in my power to make sure that we had a marriage to come back to. And she wasn't thinking that she was planning without me. That was never her intention, but that was the story that I was really holding on to. And it pissed me off. So, I mean, like, thankfully it had an end date and we don't always have that luxury of having something that says, okay, crisis is over. (laughs) You can't fight about this anymore. It's not a thing. Um, But we were lucky in that way. And what I hear underneath this too, which is so true to what you were coaching us with before, is underneath this anger for you was just the fear of losing Mm -hmm. her. Absolutely. And also the, well, why aren't I worth fighting for? Like, I'm trying to fight for you. Why aren't I worth fighting for? And I didn't have access to that because I wasn't putting the tools to work. And it was really funny. My therapist is the one who said at one point, she was like, well, how would you apply the sacred anger strategy to all the feelings you're having right now? And I was like, oh my God, this is totally applicable. It never even occurred to me. (laughs) Like, don't flip my script. (laughs) I was like, I was just so committed that it didn't even occur to me. But you know, what's really beautiful is in this process, I went and I saw a psychiatrist. I got um, a diagnosis of depression. I was like, oh yeah, it's situational depression. And the, the psychiatrist was like, oh, honey. (laughs) <laughs> you've, you've told me your life history. <laughs> this isn't situational depression. And so, you know, going through last year in particular, um, because of the stuff with her gender, I actually got the help that I've needed for my entire life. And I waited until oh. I was 40 to get, right? So I started therapy. I started antidepressants. I took my life back. And, you know, I, I was always pro-medication, but I was really resistant for it for myself. And so to yeah. be... Um, in the space that I am now, like, I'm, I'm so glad the last year happened in so many ways. It brought us closer together. It made for some really good jokes. I was like, oh, well, you know, seven year, seven year itch, you got to spice things up or whatever. <laughs> um, but they they definitely had its moments. Mm. Definitely. I feel almost close to tears listening to this story for you. It feels really, does it, maybe it doesn't cause you've been through it for a year, but hearing it for the first time, it just feels exponentially powerful. Mm-hmm. It was. Yeah. And there were times where, um, like I, I went away for a week by myself twice, well, twice. Um, once of it was more like an integration week that was most recently, but I went away in July last year 
to just have a break because the problem is when you're in that space, like everything was about her transition. It was the book she was reading. It was the articles. It was the, the stuff she was researching on Twitter. It was like, everything was about the transition. And so there was no reprieve. There was no fresh air and we're in lockdown. So it's not like I could just get on a plane and go somewhere. So my girlfriend, um, uh, owns a home that used to be an Airbnb or used to be a B and B rather. And, um, she invited me to go and stay with her and just having that space to just breathe different air where there was a, a topic of conversation that wasn't just about this. And I also understand why it was, I mean, it was, it was novel to her too. Like it was really big and she had a lot she needed to process very quickly so that she could make decisions for her own healthcare. Like I, I understand it like mentally, but in my heart, it was really like, are we really, are we really talking about this again? This is really all we have to say to each yeah. other. Yeah. So, and then in that incubation, so it, it wasn't an easy year. Um, but I think, and we have, we have been through a lot. We've gone through immigration stuff. We've gone through loss. We've gone through my mental breakdown. So in, in eight years, I think we've crammed about five people's relationships worth of challenge into ours. <laughs> Sounds like it. I think this was the only thing we hadn't done. And so, um, you know, I've made it really clear to my guides. I was like, thank you. I trust that this is a resilient relationship. I know that we've got each other's back. It doesn't have to get harder than this. Like I'm, I'm good now. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you for showing me how resilient I am. I believe you. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. And as you say, and this is the, the big teachable moment here too, is that it doesn't re I mean, it does matter how much work you put into this. Of course, it matters that you're always doing the work in some capacity, always staying reflective of yourself. Um, but again, life is meant to kind of challenge us and to have these tools, things like the sacred anger strategy, have this in your toolkit, have this book on yourself to be able to really go back to when the next challenge arises. Like that's really, that is immeasurable. Yeah, I think the importance of the toolkit is huge because what works today might not work tomorrow because we are changing and growing and also the things that make us angry are going to change as well. And so we need to have not just one tool. We need to have a few different things in our arsenal that we can lean on. Um, and one of the final chapters in his chapter nine in the book is literally like, and here are physical ways that you can move this and here are emotional ways that you can do it and here are energetic ways. Uh-huh. And, you know, we kind of, we need a directory that we can just flip the page and say, hey, this is what I'm going to try today. Because um, when we get really reliant on one tool and then it stops working, we feel powerless and helpless. And then that just adds to the anger. Whereas if we have a few different things that we can kind of improv on the fly, we can access something else that might be able to be the thing that actually does transform it for us. I love that. So would you say that that is what this book delivers? So the book Sacred Anger, uh, is it a directory? Is that what readers can expect from it? So chapter nine is a directory, <laughs> um, but the rest of it is understanding, like understanding why we're not talking about our anger, understanding how anger is a mask for other things, um, looking at contributing factors, looking at how we need to bring men into the conversation because a lot of the personal development world is very female focused, which is amazing because we really needed a voice, but now we're creating all this change and the guys are going, oh, what the fuck? So we kind of need to find ways to support them through this too, so that we don't keep bumping up against that resistance of the patriarchy, but that's a whole other conversation. Yep. Um, what else is in there? Lots of, I, I tend to teach by story. Like I, so there's a lot of personal stories. It's kind of part memoir, part self-help book. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really, and there's journal prompts at the end of each chapter so that you can, uh, rather than giving you a summary, it's like the practical application of what they just learned. 
Oh, I love that. What a beautiful gift this book sounds like. I, I cannot believe I haven't even got one on my shelf yet, but we're going to make that happen. I am running. Yes, we are definitely going to make that happen because this conversation has been just absolutely transformative for me. I've learned so much. I know the listeners are learning so much. What I love about you, among other things, so many things I love about you, <laughs> particular to this conversation, specific to this conversation, is that you are an advocate for and an activist for the hidden emotions mm -hmm. things that we don't talk about often, the things we don't see. And then that activism translates into even your work in your relationship to even be here today and make space for conversations about relationships that have actually transformed literally and to make space for stories of transgender women. In fact, I mean, we should make space for Rhea herself to actually come on and and she's a little shyer than me, but we can try to make that work. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? She's if she's in the background waving, as long as um, she always feels that her story has you know a voice and legs and is welcome here in this space. That's important to me. Um, I I want to end on this question about activism a little bit. What mm -hmm. is or how would you define maybe sacred activism? What is that? Okay, so. Activism in general is moving things forward, behaving in a way uh, to create social change, right? So whether it's um, picketing things and protesting, whether it's writing letters um, to politicians, whether it's having uncomfortable conversations with like racist relatives and that kind of thing, all of that is activism. Um, some of it, and this sounds a bit cynical, some of it is for show. Some of it is because it's what you're supposed to do. Some of it is very politically oriented and that's why people do it, especially if they're doing it as a career, as opposed to just something that moves them to act in that way. Okay. Um, sacred activism is when we take the time to tap into the things that matter most to us. Now, I think what happened last year is so much happened around the world that people were actually burning out because they tried to fight for every single cause and we can't fight for everything. But if we sit down with our anger and we look at the things that matter the most to us, that helps us show like what is important and where we can direct our efforts so that when we want to take the time to go to a protest, write a letter, have a conversation with a racist relative or whatever it is, that we're able to do that in the things that matter most to us rather than trying to fight every fire. Because we are, we, we're wonderful beings and, and it's great to be human, but we also have a finite amount of energy that we can deal with every day. And so we cannot champion every cause. And when we choose the ones that are the most sacred to us, the ones that feel the most call to us and like sometimes it's because it's tied to something we've experienced sometimes it's just a story we heard that really lit a fire under us sometimes it's a past life thing that just makes it really important yeah whatever your reason if it is truly sacred for you you're willing to go to the mat for it and you're doing it in the in for the causes that matter the most not just because it's something that is trending on social media oh that could not literally be a better way to end this episode truly Thank you for articulating that so profoundly and so beautifully. It's actually very, it mirrors something that a university professor said to me in, oh heavens, I'm not even going to date myself. We're talking probably two decades ago now when I did my first degree. Um, and, and it mirrored that. I was doing a gender studies or women's studies program and it mirrored exactly what you're saying. And, and I feel like, and maybe everybody can kind of take a big deep breath on that as well and say, mm. we can advocate for many things, but championing all the things can kind of lend itself to be performative if we're not doing the deeper work to figure out why we're championing, championing 
that particular cause. So thank you for that. Thank you. I was going to burn us out because I totally burn you out because there is a lot going on to be angry about in the world. That's exactly right. And it's so much going on in the world that will make us angry. That means more people need this book on their bookshelves. The book Sacred Anger, you said you can find it anywhere books are sold. Where can they go to find Serena? Website, social media handle? Yeah. So if you go to serena.ca, so Serena with a Y, that's the easiest way to find my website. It has all of my offerings and and freebies and all that kind of good stuff that's on there. I actually have a really great tool that you can find on there that is um, conversations with anger. So it's three different strategies that you can use because like I said, you need to have more than one to sit down, have a conversation with your anger and find out why it's here, what it wants to teach you so you can then send it packing. And um, everything on all the other social channels, it's serenamyers.ca. Oops, just at Serena Myers. I love it. Just Serena Myers. That will all be in the show notes as usual, of course, but serena.ca, Serena with a Y. Um, Go and find out more about this lovely, lovely human being who has just graced us today with this huge, huge like epiphanies all over the place. Like really just a ton of aha moments for me, for sure. I'm sure the listeners would agree. Serena, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story. I adore you, Anna. Thank you so much for sharing your space with me today. It's been, it's been a delight. Feelings mutual. I am so grateful to have had Serena here today. As she said, she did reach out to me and pitch to be on this podcast, but that truly was a gift to me when people really just embrace what they know, embrace their expertise, and really just reach out and share their story. Is there anything seriously more powerful in the world than that? Now, I sometimes, and maybe I'm not consistent with this, but I do a Secrets Are Out segment at the end of every podcast And I often weigh out this battle of, is there anything more kind of I can add to this conversation? And I feel like today, I really feel like the the message that comes up for me and the message that really came through here was about owning who you are. All the versions of uh, Serena's story and her personal journey and her journey with her wife is really just about owning exactly who you are. And the magic that can happen when you do that and owning who you are means the recognizing, frankly, that who you are is, if you uh, study consciousness or believe in consciousness or have a, a spiritual perspective, will know that you are consciousness in disguise. So you have this conscious side of yourself, this spiritual side, the soul, and then you have the human manifestation of that. You do actually have to show up in a human body in the human world in order to even witness any of the other facets of yourself and to meet those other layers and levels. So here we are, who you are, walking around as a human being, and we do really, and this is what we got into today about being PR people for fear and anger, it really isn't about advocating for uh, staying in and settling into things that are quote unquote negative emotions. It's about really embodying all of who you are. And if we don't embody and embrace things like the fear that comes up, which is literally in our human bodies. It's something that is created inside this costume we wear. And the anger, the same thing. We're not really learning anything new. We're not learning from an experience. If everything just ticks along constantly, we get a little bit complacent, right? We stop being as aware. We stop reflecting because we're just kind of moving down a smooth highway. 
And when the road twists and turns a little bit, we have to be more on high alert. We have to kind of grab the wheel. We have to turn the car. We have to look at what's around us. So thinking about it in that way about fear, which I always say is just like our activator, right? It's our activation point to back towards love and back towards our higher self. It's really just reminding us of all of the things that we're capable of and our resilience. The same is true for things like anger and sadness, right? It's like a little twist and a little bend in the road that wakes us up a little bit and allows us to be awakened. And sometimes it becomes the catalyst to an awakening. So what do I want to say? I want to say, be yourself, be yourself. It sounds so cliche, but just show up fully as who you are and you will find your place in this human world. Until next week. Thank you for joining this edit of the Unapologetic Stories podcast. If you're ready to share your truth and rewrite your personal life story, connect with me at unapologeticstories.com for all the details on speaker training, storytelling, and strategizing your way through this one big life. If you've enjoyed listening, we would love for you to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast listening app or Apple Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Unapologetic Anna for new speaker training start dates. Until next time, stay brave, stay unapologetic, and keep bringing in your truth.